Lovitar is the goddess of pain and torture. She and her faith cause torment and suffering for the common people throughout Faerun. I'm Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. With Loviatar, we get to tackle how a deity from two or more separate pantheons operate functionally in D&D canon. For those of you who listened to the Ogma, Myleki, Tyr, and or Sylvanas episodes in the past, I'm going to be giving the same overview I did at the start of those episodes, so feel free to skip ahead a couple minutes. A few deities from the Faerunian pantheon come from other pantheons. Each one of these deities exists in a pantheon from our real-world religions that have polytheistic beliefs. Ogma and Sylvanas are Celtic deities, Loviatar and Myleki are Finnish deities, and Tyr is a Norse deity. Each of these deities is classified as an interloper deity, compared to that of native deities. Native deities of the Forgotten Realms are those that were around during the creation of Toril, like Shantia or Shar, or arose sometime after during the timeline of Toril, like Torm or Siric. An interloper deity is a deity who was worshipped on another plane or material world until their presence and influence was brought through to Toril via their worshippers or other means. To the vast majority of people on Toril, they aren't aware of such things or would even concern themselves with such a categorization. Though theological scholars are interested in such a delineation. The five deities I listed earlier are included in this category alongside the racial pantheons, like the Drow Pantheon, as I've covered in the past, or the Orcish Pantheon, just as some examples. Interloper deities were allowed into the crystal sphere of realm space presided over by Ao for a long time. That was until Ao began putting up the formal boundaries around what entity could exist as a deity in realm space. Now here is where the canon conflicts a bit. In the third edition of supplement, Faiths and Pantheons, it says that the aspect of a deity in Toril is independent to that of the aspect of a deity on another planar world, which I can agree with somewhat. As I will talk about further into the podcast, Lovitar as she exists in the Finnish pantheon is similar to Lovitar as she exists in the Faerunian pantheon in some respects, but rather different in others as she has established a different enough identity and presentation. However, the issue I take with what this supplement says is that if a team of adventurers native to Toro were ever capable of reaching Lovitar's divine realm and then slaying Lovitar, only the Toral aspect of Lolitar would die. That means in some mystical way, which I admit definitely fits the power of a deity, Loviatar in the Finnish pantheon would still exist. The perspective I agree with most is that taken by 2nd edition's Faiths and Avatars. In this book, it is stated that deities who exist in pantheons outside of Toral are the same as deities as they are in the pantheons of Toral. In that, 
if the same adventuring party from Toril kills Loviatar, under this perspective, they kill Loviatar both in the Faerunian pantheon and in the Finnish pantheon, across any prime material worlds or planes where she is venerated. Though the book does stipulate, quote, even then one has to be careful not to assume too much. Either way, I think a dungeon master trying to adhere to canon is free to use either perspective or some amalgam of both. It is important to note that when describing deities taken from our real-world religions, the authors do point out that they did take some liberties and creative freedoms with their descriptions. As it is, I know very little of anything about our real-world Finnish pantheon and belief system. Barring further research on the topic, I am just going to present what is in the D&D books, and will leave it to those who are far more knowledgeable to comment on what it is the D&D authors got correct or incorrect. Titles Loviatar goes by the following titles. Maiden of Pain, The Willing Whip, and Patroness of Torturers. She has no known aliases. Portfolio and Domains Loviatar holds the portfolios of Pain, Hurt, Agony, Torment, Suffering, and Torture. Loviatar's suggested domain in 5th edition's Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide is Death. Since that book was published earlier than several later source books, I can see where the Order domain presented in both Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and Tasha's Cauldron of Everything could fit as well. Appearance and Manifestations Loviatar is commonly depicted as a woman with skin as white as snow. She adorns herself in pleated white-scale male armor. In earlier writings, Loviatar is said to hold and favors a white wand confusingly called the Dagger of Ice. This aligns with the description in the Finnish pantheon presented in other early D&D sourcebooks. One discrepancy being in the first edition setting agnostic sourcebook, Deities and Demigods, where Loviatar's breath, when she speaks, blows like a frigid wind. In later editions, Loviatar's favorite weapon is said to be the Scourge. In third edition's Face and Pantheons, Lovitar has given her Scourge the name of Painbringer, but nothing further about the Scourge is said. At least in 2nd edition, Lovitar is described as wielding both this wand and Scourge. I theorize that as Lovitar spent more time in the realms, the Scourge and Whip continued to grow in its association with Lovitar. Thus, any mention of the Dagger of Ice is known only by religious scholars and senior members of Lovitar's faith. Lovitar's avatar appears as a gorgeous human woman, slim in build, with platinum blonde hair that hangs down to her thighs. This avatar is either dressed in diaphanous white silks with interlacing silver chains, or she wears black leathers adorned with dangerous spikes. Two garters worn by the avatar function as ropes of entanglement. These garters are used if the avatar finds themselves in a grave situation. The avatar moves gracefully, speaks softly, and conducts themselves in a seductive manner. The avatar can be damaged mechanically, but any pain does not cause the avatar to reel back or give her pause. Rather, the avatar leans into the pain, oftentimes throwing herself with reckless abandon into a situation, knowing full well she is going to suffer some damage. When the avatar's wounds bleed, the blood is black in color and is viscous as syrup. 
Loviatar has two known manifestations. The first manifestation is a flying black whip that holds the same abilities and statistics as those whips used by Lovitar's avatar, which we will touch on in a little bit. The second manifestation is the disembodied head of a human woman that flies through the air, cackling the whole way. Her platinum blonde hair trails in behind. A kiss ability, which is tied in with Loviatar's avatar, which again we will touch on in a bit, is also available to both of the mentioned manifestations. Both manifestations can speak, write, or cast illusion spells. The whip spells out words in the air with its tip, the head animates a lock of its hair to spell out words, though the manifested letters are written out in black blood in both cases. Loviatar makes use of the following creatures to communicate her approval, disapproval, or aid her mortal followers. Exiled devils, imps, tieflings who are all cruel sorts, inquisitors. This is an undead creature, not a humanoid. Nightmares, hellhounds, black rats, black poisonous spiders, and wolf spiders. Loviatar can also manifest items on the prime material, to reward her mortal followers and double as a source of inspiration. Jet gemstones, ivory, snowflake obsidian, webstone, amber with a spider stuck inside, black sapphire, black violets, and black and red poppies. Unique to Lovitar is the gift of a white rod or a white wand. The White Rod is a reward to her most dutiful clergy who have done much to spread her doctrine of pain and suffering. On the other hand, Lovitar often gives the White Wand to those who unconsciously serve Lovitar's ends. This she does with much joy knowing how torn up such individuals will be upon receiving a White Wand. These wands appear with no rhyme or reason and mentally communicate their intent immediately to the receiver. A white wand absorbs 1d10 of spell levels before it dissolves away. Abilities Initially in 1st edition and early 2nd edition Forgotten Realms, Loviatar held the rank of a demigoddess. Loviatar was then given a rank of lesser goddess in 2nd edition, and this carried forward into 3rd edition. Why she gained a promotion is unstead. If I had to make an in-world justification... Perhaps with Bane and Ball's death, some followers and clerics moved on to Lovitar's faith. Likely it was just a creative decision on the part of the writers without any further need for a justification. Fourth edition used an alternative deific hierarchy. Lovitar in that edition was given the rank of God, which is a middling rank in between Exarch and Greater God. Fifth edition almost never gives a rank to any deity. As such, if I had to guess which rank Lovitar holds in the current edition, it is that of a lesser deity. Lovitar's standing in the finished pantheon according to 1st edition and 2nd edition sources is that of a demigoddess. The 2nd edition Planescape product on hallowed ground makes a point of highlighting Lovitar's power differential in the Finnish and Faerunian pantheon. Given Lovitar's success and greater influence on Toril, Lovitar might up and leave the Finnish Pantheon altogether. Lovitar does have a stat block, but these stat blocks come from 1st edition's Legends and Lore and Deities and Demigods, where she is listed as a demigoddess and a member of the Finnish Pantheon. She does not have a stat block given to her in the Faerunian Pantheon. 
However, there is an avatar stat block for her in 2nd edition's base and avatars. I have chosen select elements from that stat block to talk about. Just be aware of the fact that I may mention 2nd edition terms that are now unknown in the 5th edition game. Those who damage the avatar of Loitar, in turn, are dealt the most excruciating pain they have ever experienced in their lives. In other words, the situation in which they mechanically suffer the most damage is the retribution dealt to the character once more. The caveat being damage dealt in the past that killed a character is ignored. Instead, using damage dealt in the past that did not bring the character to zero or less hit points. Any second attack that strikes the avatar by the same character causes the character to suffer the second most damage they have ever experienced. The book does not say if this process continues onwards with every subsequent damaging spell or attack. Logistically, this is untenable at the table, unless the DM has been tracking periods where major damage was done over the course of campaign. As far as 2nd edition is concerned, the dagger of ice she wields functions both as wand and dagger. It's not terribly hard to envision it as a sharpened magical wand, which doubles as a dagger after all. The dagger of ice, of course, is used by the avatar in hand-to-hand combat, causing those hit by it to suffer cold damage on top of the weapon's regular physical damage. The most interesting aspect of the dagger of ice is its ability to absorb up to 9 spell levels per turn. This ability doesn't trigger automatically. Rather, the avatar makes the decision to absorb on a case-by-case basis. Lovitar's avatar is certainly not without her whips or scourges. The avatar can manifest 20-foot-long barbed whips or scourges whenever in either of her hands. The avatar's capabilities with her whips are legendary, achieving jaw-dropping feats of accuracy. After each time a whip or scourge of hers lashes out, it fades to nothingness. Though she may ensnare a foe with a whip, disallowing them from performing certain abilities, or she could just drag them closer to her. The kiss ability from this avatar heals a faithful Loviatin, or someone Loviatar has a particular fondness for. Others, however, suffer from acid damage upon being kissed. A save against death magic also follows with the kiss. Upon a failure, an individual becomes utterly helpless and stunned for the next upcoming round. Personal History At the beginning of the episode, I touched on how Loviatar is an interloper deity from outside Toril. To say it again, Loviatar is from the Finnish pantheon, in that she is a real goddess from Finnish mythology, who writers from earlier editions of D&D brought into the wider universe alongside her kin, from the Finnish pantheon. Both Mailiki and Lovitar found a home in influencing Toril outside their native Finnish pantheon. The second edition Planescape sourcebook called On Hallowed Ground states that both goddesses expanded outwards for more followers because they, quote, saw their brethren losing interest in life and decided they were too young to give up so easily. Now, Mailiki and Loviatar are not the only goddesses to come over from the Finnish pantheon to influence Toril. Loviatar has a sister, or perhaps had a sister, called Kiputia, who for all intents and purposes may or may not still exist in the Finnish pantheon. But one thing is clear, Tolona killed Kiputia in negative 33 Dale Reckoning 
due to conflict over the desired portfolio of disease to the point that Kaputia can be considered dead as far as the realms are concerned. Whether Kaputia is dead in the Finnish pantheon also and subsequently throughout the rest of the D&D universe is a matter of personal perspective and different interpretations from edition to edition. I recommend you listen to my episode on Talona if you want to know the particulars of the conflict and battle. Since her sister's death, Lovitar has seen Talona as a constant rival and enemy. I found no writing that spoke to whether or not Lovitar and Kiputia crossed into the realms at the same time or not, nor when they crossed over either. The earliest date I contribute to Lovitar in the realms is 778 Dale Reckoning, when the first knowledge of a sacred relic to her called the Lash of Lovitar was written. We know of two particular years that are significant to Lovitar and her faith. However, any further information about what transpired during those years goes unsaid. In 1150 Dale Reckoning, known as the Year of the Scourge, the Sword Coast was racked by a plague. As a result, the face of Talona and Lovitar increased in number. In 1245 Dale Reckoning, known as the Year of Pain, Lovitar's faith saw another drastic increase in their numbers. Again, why this is, is never described in any sources I looked through. In any case, the bulk of temples dedicated to Lovitar in the north of Faerun are founded at this time. For a long period of time, Lovitar was in an alliance known as the Dark Gods. She and Talona were subservient to Baal, which meant that indirectly they were subservient to Bane, given Baal held Bane as his superior. During the Time of Troubles in 1358 Del Reckoning, Lovitar was active in Waterdeep after she and the vast majority of gods were banished from their divine realms to walk the surface of Faerun. Her location during the Time of Troubles is only mentioned once, and it is mentioned in the Shadowdale novel, which is the first book in the Avatar novel series. Bane was sending out one of his followers to deliver a message to Lovitar, who Bane believed to be in Waterdeep. What she was getting up to during the rest of the Time of Troubles, I could not find any further information on that. After the Spell Plague, so sometime after 1385 Dale Reckoning, Lovitar became Bane's consort. With this union, the Baneite and Lovitan faiths were united. Lovitans became a distinct part of the Baneite hierarchy. Every evidence I have seen from the 4th edition era differentiated between the two faiths still. In the present day realms, Bane has voluntarily reduced his deific power level significantly to reside down on the face of Faerun with his two long-standing allies and former adventuring companions, Baal and Merkel. Now, there is nothing overtly stated to suggest that Bane and Lovitar are no longer romantically entangled. I'm going to make an educated guess that it is rather likely that Lovitar is no longer involved in such an arrangement, if she has any sort of an arrangement with Bane whatsoever, given Bane's drastic decrease in power level. Personality Lovitar is listed as a lawful evil goddess across every edition except 4th edition, the reason being that 4th edition used an alternative alignment system. So, Lovitar 
in 4th edition is given an alignment of evil. Loviatar is a threatening, tyrannical, and bold goddess. She holds no mercy, and she is cunning. This is said to be born out of her frozen heart. Whether this is meant figuratively or factually is not stated. Honestly, I could see either being the case. Lovitar has an innate sense of where to strike and wound her victims most effectively. This goes for dealing both physical and emotional damage. She is said to be immune from pain. Any attempt to hurt her leaves her laughing at her assailant. If she is said to have one weakness, it is her inability to understand the concept of selflessness and self-sacrifice. Lovitar assumes and relies on the selfishness she thinks to be innate to every individual. Personal Realms In the Great Wheel cosmological model used in 1st edition, 2nd edition, and is the assumed default cosmological model for 5th edition, Lovitar resides on the split lawful evil, neutral evil, aligned outer plane of Gehenna. Lovitar's realm, called Auntland, is found on the third layer of Gehenna, called Mungoth. Gehenna is laid out in a similar fashion to that of Mount Celestia, where each of the four great volcanoes that make up Gehenna serve as layers unto themselves. What is different is that the slopes of these four steep volcanoes are finite and measurable and not in flux but that may be the only reassuring thing about Gehenna. Each massive volcano is referred to as a furnace, and Gehenna itself is known as the fourfold furnaces for that very reason, though it is also known as the Oven of Perdition. Surrounding the jagged slopes is nothing but a black void that leads to places unknown and woe betide the individual that tumbles down into the dark. Up above, the sky that separates each layer is another black void itself, save a small amount of light that might pass through from volcanic activity on an above layer. The only source of light on the plane is the roiling and spewing magma and red-hot stone that produce a cycle of light across the plane as certain areas are bright with volcanic activity, while others have cooled off and darkened. Small little volcanic islands float in the air and occasionally smash into the sides of the main volcanoes. The petitioners and creatures found on Gehenna are evil, guided by some degree of law, but still acting out selfishly, taking advantage of those that they can for profit. The plane itself seems to embody this mindset, as the terrain here almost has a mind of its own. Untimely avalanches cascading down its hills are large cracks opening up to pour hot lava over the vulnerable suddenly. The terrain also doesn't take kindly to anyone manipulating it physically or magically to be level. Invariably, the terrain will shift and reinstate its desired need to be steep and sloped. Referring to 5th edition sources, Gehenna is the plane of origin for the Yugoloths. This is where they were first created and this is where they are reformed if they are killed away from this plane. This plane does see its fair share of blood war activity as well. But given how close it is, cosmologically speaking, to the Nine Hells, the devils seem to have the upper hand here. Mungoth, the third layer of Gehenna, is given the title of the Burning Ice. 
On this layer, the fire seen in the preceding layers is all but smoldering. Due to this, the layer is perpetually dimly lit. The surface is covered in both ash and snow. The tremors of volcanic activity are still present, however they are far more reduced. While one might think the ash and still hot temperatures that exist even in pockets are the greatest threat, it is actually the snow. Due to the influence of the ash that surrounds it, the snow burns both clothing and skin. What's worse is that snowstorms can last for hours upon hours. Mudslides are fairly common as well. People swear the plane is actively unleashing the mudslides upon those who tread upon Mungoth. Second edition's Planescape did us all a favor and described Lovitar's realm, called Auntland, in a fair amount of detail. This is usually the exception to the rule when it comes to a lot of these divine realms. Rising out of the center of Auntland is Lovitar's frigid palace. This craggy fortress radiates an aurora up and into the sky. This aurora then plays across the sky just like the northern lights from our real world. This is one artistic freedom Lovitar allows herself. Much like a polar region in our real world in the deepest parts of winter, Auntland has long periods of night skies with only two hours of daylight in a given day. Difference being, this is a constant with no shift in daylight due to different seasons. It is terribly cold in Auntland as a person's breath freezes immediately upon any exposed facial hair and eyelashes. Through her will, Lovitar disallows any hotspots for Mongoth to exist in her divine realm. Auntland's landscape is a desolate polar expanse of snow and ice. Here the caribou are carnivores and dire wolves prowl for their next meals. Ice can break and collapse revealing crevices that spill down into the magma pools welled up beneath the surface of Mungoth. Glaciers are found across Auntland. They may challenge any daring and adventurous climber. There are several caves that have been formed and dug out of these glaciers as well. However, these are the homes of Yetis and Remoraz. The glaciers move as if guided by an unseen force. Some of these glaciers reportedly can travel miles across Auntland in a single night. While a desolate realm, Auntland does have a few settlements. The largest is called Smertzin, which is home to 10,000 individuals. All who live here wear the fur of white wolves. It is held that by wearing this fur, the inhabitants may keep any evil done to them at bay. Though by all accounts, this is just superstition, and several have suffered regardless. It is by far the most welcoming settlement, in that the inhabitants are not nearly outwardly hostile. The second largest settlement found in Auntland is Asburn. This settlement is ruled by a werewolf named Per Svensson. Any who travel through Asburn is fair game as a food source for Per, unless his food stores are full, whereby newcomers may live potentially unaccosted. Another environmental danger throughout Auntland is the blowing snow. Kicked up snow burns away at an individual. What's more, the wind can get up to gale force speeds, which introduces its own unique circumstances alongside searing snow whipping up against your body. Lovitar has a fighting force that travels her realm known as the Whips. This group is led by Great Jarl Eric Redson. They travel across the realm on wolf-drawn sleds. 
They administer the tyrannical rules of Logitar across the settlements, and the Great Yarl can twist the laws to his liking to enact desired punishments. An outlier in Auntland is what I believe to be an intelligent reindeer who goes by the name Lahutek. Lahutek is a good aligned creature who goes out of her way to make friends with travelers to this realm. She warns them of the dangers inherent and known across Auntland. She also is an accomplished hunter who takes down direwolves and sells their pelts in several settlements. Lovitar allows such a good aligned creature to exist since Lovitar sees pain suffered from a known danger is far greater and benefits her than the lesser pain suffered because of an unknown danger. The torturers who exist in multitudes across Auntland are sought out across the lower outer plains for their services. Some of these torturers even learned in an institution unknown to me called the School of Pain found on the Nine Hells. Each torturer bears a dagger made of ice and a whip tucked into their belt in clear emulation of Loviatar. These torturers are sought out by both sides of the blood war. Fiends don't fear these individuals, but there is an element of respect. Skillfully sourced furs taken off the direwolves of Auntland are innately enchanted with protection from cold damage. Upon donning these furs, this protection is granted to the wearer. However, there is a risk to sourcing these furs. Some individuals have lost their minds and became rampaging bestial creatures themselves after wearing such furs. Known cures for lycanthropy also do not seem to work on these affected individuals. In the World Tree cosmological model used for 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, Lovitar resides on the plain of barons of doom and despair. The barons are inhospitable, bleak and vastly empty of life and joy. Here the plains landscape consists of black sand, plains of granite, and the occasional canyon ringed with cliffs made of obsidian. Though there are areas of inhospitable tundra and ice, no sun shines here as permanent black clouds hang above while red sky glows in behind them. Petitioners who arrive on the barrens are turned into larvae. These are creatures medium in size with worm-like bodies who retain the form of their mortal heads. As you move from Hor's realm, there is a drastic decrease in the temperature. This will eventually bring you to Loviatar's realm. Not much is said about her realm on the barrens, though characteristics mentioned are much the same as described before in the Great Wheel. There are two chief differences. One is Lovitar's place of residence is referred to as the Palace of Pain. The second being the dire wolves are described as fiendish as well. Within the World Axis cosmological model used for 4th edition, Lovitar resides on the dominion known as Banehold. Here, Bane is a superior governing power. The sky is lit by a constant pale green light. Bane has then divided his domain up into fiefs for each of the powers beneath him to control. Outside of the controlled fiefs is a landscape of hard scrabble, obsidian, sand, and pitted iron. Many ruins of forts and castles dot the land. 
the sky in these ungoverned lands is instead red with the occasional black storm that passes overhead. These distant lands being keeps in his domain to remind those beneath him what may come to pass to their own holdings should they disobey him. Allies and Allegiances With Baal's absence following the time of troubles, Lovitar felt the influence of Shar for a time. However, Bane reemerged, and Lovitar found both Bane and Shar competing for her alliance. Bane would eventually win over Lovitar and take her as a consort. Lovitar and Malar get along quite well. The fear and tribulations Malar and his followers put their prey through are viewed favorably by Lovitar. Outside of the Faerunian pantheon, Lovitar is allied with Lolth, who is the head of the Drow pantheon. Enemies Lovitar has two chief foes. First is a long-standing foe in Tolona. If you recall from earlier, Lovitar derides and hates Tolona, since Tolona slew Lovitar's sister, Kuputia. Since then, Lovitar picks away at Tolona by insulting Tolona's diseased appearance, small following, and Tolona's, quote, cowardly and ineffectual attacks. Ilmater is Lovitar's other chief foe. Ilmater's aim to protect people from pain and suffering drives Lovitar mad with rage. Next to these two foes are Eldath, Lyra, and Timora. From Lovitar's perspective, these goddesses grant either peace, happiness, or good luck without the required pain and suffering necessary to be worthy of it. Lovitar is a foe of the currently imprisoned Gargoth. Preceding the Time of Troubles, the Dark God Alliance worked together to combat Garbgoth and his machinations. Lovitar eyes Shares in her portfolios enviously. Shares makes sure to keep such things as far away from the Maiden of Pain as possible. Symbols In the Faerunian pantheon, Lovitar's faith uses the following symbol. A nine-tailed barbed scourge. The barbed ends of the scourge are bloodied. In the, quote, Elder Days, Lovitar's faith used the following symbol. A snow-white female hand with fingers facing downward. From each of the fingertips drips three drops of blood. Why and when this transition occurred isn't stated. Though I gravitate to a personal theory that as Lovitar found her footing and influence grow on Faerun, she shrugged off any former connection to the Finnish pantheon and adopted the current symbol of the Scourge. In the Finnish pantheon, Lovitar's faith bears the symbol of a white dagger clutched in a pale hand. Central Dogma From Face and Pantheons, a 3rd edition supplement. Quote, the world is filled with pain and torment, and the best one can do is to suffer those blows that cannot be avoided and deal as much pain back to those who offend. Kindnesses are the best companions to hurts and increase the intensity of suffering. Let mercy of sudden abstinence from causing pain and of providing unlooked for healing come over you seldom, but at whim, so as to make folk hope and increase the mystery of Lovitar's mercy. Unswerving cruelty will turn all folk against you. Act alluring, and give pain and torment to those who enjoy it as well, to those who deserve it most, or would be hurt most by it. 
The lash, fire, and cold are the three pains that never fail the devout. Spread Lovitar's teachings whenever punishment is meted out. Pain tests all, but gives strength of spirit and true pleasure to the hearty and the true. There is no punishment if the punisher knows no discipline. Wherever a whip is, there is Lovitar. Fear her and yet long for her. End quote. Presence of the Faith Lovitar's clerics tend to hold an alignment of lawful evil, lawful neutral, and neutral evil. Typical lay followers of Lovitar tend to be jailers, torturers, charlatans, a good number of half-orcs, evil warriors, and some depraved individuals. Some non-humans come to worship Lovitar as through her faith they can easily justify the bullying of others. Opponents of the Lovitan faith still give Lovitans a wide berth. This is because if Lovitans catch you and or take you prisoner, death will be the least of your worries. What Lovitar's faith lacks in visible and open temples throughout Faerun, she makes up for in secretive underground cults. Many of these cults revolve around one domineering individual who is placated by lesser submissive followers and zealots. Cults like these are typically small in number, unless found in the cities of the realms. Lovitar's cults are afforded a degree of disinterest from some authorities. Issues only begin to arise when some cults are found participating in the trade of slaves and or taking people in against their will. Lovitar's faith is primarily an urban one and not found usually in rural or wild areas. New members are often brought in from the wealthy and bored, or the poor and desperate who are lured in with long-lasting revels and plied with drugged wine in seductive intimate activities. Lovitans can be found walking dangerous and dark streets with confidence. Some ne'er-do-wells or even those from good-aligned faiths often take it upon themselves to attack singular Lovitans. The true danger here is just how Lovitans embrace combat and pain, catching many by surprise. They lash out without a thought for their own self-preservation. A Lovitan may find themselves bored and stride into a tavern just to stir up a brawl. Though this is frowned upon as doing this one too many times may draw the attention of the authorities and the ire of the populace. A Chosen of Lovitar is mentioned in the 5th edition adventure anthology, Tales from the Yonic Portal. In the adventure Dead and Thay, Saz Tam, the lich ruler of Thay, has built small shrines called Temples of Extraction where the divine essences of various Chosen are being siphoned in an attempt to collect these essences and allow Saz Tam to reach godhood. Within can be found the half-elf woman Irisoth, chosen of Lothiatar. I can offer no further information about this individual, as nothing more was given. Lovitar's faith has been given leave to operate within Cormir, though only behind closed doors and so long as they adhere to Greek terms. Terms were arranged with the war wizards of Cormir to not coerce or medically induce others into becoming followers of the faith or to become part of any ritual. As well, Lovitans are to aid the ward wizards and the crown of Cormir in military conflicts should the need arise, and maintain law and order 
usually through the capture of named criminals. Lovitar's faith is known to operate in Marsember, Arabelle, and Suzale. Lovitans are allowed to engage in seductive and alluring rituals that may grant them gifts or converts. Loviatar had a strong presence and influence in the nation of Dambrath, found in the shining south region of the realms. Here, a particular caste of half-drow, known in Dambrath as the Krinti, ruled and they lorded over the resident human population, who came to be known as the Shibali, or Lower Ones. Forming the upper crust of the Krinti were the children of the first, these being the descendants of the original 112 priestesses of Loviatar, who were instrumental in initially founding Dambrath. Their state religion was that of Loviatar. Dambrath is a warm nation that has never seen snow. At least in the second edition era, it had only seen 12 documented cases of frost. Frost was considered an ill omen from Lovitar, marking her displeasure with the nation. Before Dambrath was made into a nation, the land was occupied by a kingdom of plains people. These humans are called the Archaeans. In 802 Dale Reckoning, the Archaeans made the grave mistake of digging beneath the Noah Watch Mountains in the north of what would become Dambrath in coming into contact with the evil drow city of Talindhead. What began was a back-and-forth exchange of raids, battles, and skirmishes for three decades. The drow eventually had the Archaeans in a desperate situation. The Archaeans were holed up in a city. An outside group of priestesses arrived to the city, offering their aid to the Archaeans, which they took. The drow would later attack only for the priestesses to shift allegiances and cut down the Archaeans. Were it not for the priestesses, the drow would not have won. These priestesses of Lovitar knew this and entered into an agreement with the drow. The Lovitan priestesses would rule on the surface on behalf of the drow. The drow in turn would receive slaves, supplies, and weapons. As time wore on, some elements of the drow intermingled with the ruling half-elves. Emerging out of this relationship were the half-drow who became the Krinti. Dambrath had a prolific Loviatan presence with many Krinti women who were priestesses of Lovitar. Many of these priestesses dabbled in the arcane or became multi-class cleric wizards. Their queen was always named as a high priestess of Loviatar and traced their lineage back to the head priestess who led the half-el Loviatans. The former face of the Archaeans would fall away for those who did not manage to escape to outside regions. Because of the influence of both the Lolf-led drow city of Tlindhet and the female-dominated faith of Lovitar, Dambrath became a tyrannical matriarchy. Archaean men in particular did not fare well under this system, usually being turned over to the Lovitan temples for torture and punishment for crimes committed. Krinti women were only allowed to become spellcasters. During the spell plague, the Archaeans rose up, taking up their ancestral practices around nature magic in worship of Malar. Allegedly, they ran all the Krinti out of Dambrath, all the while killing any Lovitan they came across. Many of the Krinti fled to the drow city of Talinthet, seeking sanctuary. 
only for the drow to kill them instead. I became interested in Dambrath well over a year ago. This type of thing happens when I read and do research for the show. My focus is on the deities, but I come across interesting regions and ancient past kingdoms that always tend to grab me. Now, nothing in 4th edition and 5th edition suggests this particular individual may be kicking around still. It may be that she was banished or destroyed by the Archaean Uprising. But I would be remiss if I did not talk about Yonandra, who may yet help to establish a new Lovitin foothold in Dambrath, if a DM was so inclined to take it in that direction. Yonandra, like her ancestors before her, ruled as Queen of Dambrath while serving as High Priestess of Loviatar. She was an accomplished pirate, sailing and pillaging in the Great Sea for many years, which garnered her the moniker of the Pirate Queen. In her later years, she became inflicted with an incurable wasting sickness. The time was right for Yonandra to announce her successor. Rather than choosing one of her daughters, who were powerful pirates and priestesses of Lovitar in their own right, Yonandra named her daughter Hasafir, a far better wizard than priestess, successor. Daughter and mother entered into an agreement. Hasafir could have the throne. Hasafir provided Yonandra with a spell that allowed Yonandra to choose her time and place of death. Upon dying... Yonandra turned into a spectral guardian, and her personal steed was turned into a nightmare. This was accomplished in tandem with drow sorcerers and a boon presented from Loviatar herself. Yonandra would be given a new moniker, the Nightmare Queen, who appears to both terrorize and inspire on the dark nights across the countryside of Dambrath. While 4th edition's Forgotten Realms campaign guide reads as if every Lovitan element was either driven out or quashed. I severely doubt that. Lovitar's faith was entrenched here in both surrounding architecture and culture, not to mention any Krinti who may have fled to other remote locales and have remained in hiding. Do I think Dambrath will ever be fleshed out in the future? I don't think so. So it's kind of an open, you know, platform to do whatever you want with it. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Collectively, the clergy of Loviatar are called Lovitans, Lashes of Loviatar, or may be known informally as Inflictors. Though in the past they also went by Lovites. The Lovitan faith is one dominated by female humans and half-elves. At least during the second edition era, the Lovitan faith was a small clerical body, but it was a clergy that wielded significant power across many areas of civilization. Second edition's faiths and avatars discusses the breakdown of the Lovitan clergy. However, it mentions terms relevant to character options that are not present going forward into future editions of D&D. The bulk of the clergy is made up of clerics. Next in number are the specialty priests, who are specifically called Pains. The Pains exist as their own unique branch of the faith. They are transient, making sure Loviatar's tenets are being fulfilled abroad. They function as the faith's secret agents and inquisitors. Mystics are tied only with Loviatin monasteries. A given monastery is affiliated with a temple. Typically, a given Loviatin shrine or temple is filled entirely with clerics, 
though the clerics have one to three specialty priests who are specific to their respective place of worship. Two different hierarchies are presented for the faith. The first is found in second editions faiths and avatars. The Lovitans use the following ranks for their clergy in ascending order. Kneeling ones, who are the novices of the faith. Tastrin, first rank of the full clergy. Adept in pain, sister or brother in torment. Supremar, caresser of terrors. Whiplass or whiplar. Pain giver, whip mistress or whip master. High whip mistress or whip master. Branded of the god, and at the very top, Truscar. The last two ranks of Branded of the God and Truscar are borne by the heads of monasteries and temples. Though itinerant, wandering Lovitin, who have achieved much in the wider world, may also be granted these two specific ranks. The second hierarchy is presented in the edition agnostic Ed Greenwood presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms. This source book provides a historical context for the rank structure given. In the mid-1300s Dale Reckoning, there was a climatic overhaul of the Lovitan faith. With no actual year given, I cannot say for sure whether this book is alluding to the previous hierarchy given in the face of avatars being the one that changed. To play it safe, I'm going to assume they are two distinct hierarchies that any dungeon master could use in their version of the realms. The climatic shift saw the removal of High Whip Mistress as head of the Lovitan faith and her accompanying seven exaltic scourges. Going forward, the faith was controlled by seven exaltic scourges at the top. Each scourge has agents and envoys called pains. Next beneath them are the entrusted whips who run temples. At each temple, you will then find the lashes who are the senior clergy and the lesser lashes, the lesser clergy. Allegedly, this change stimulated a shift in perspective from the Lowington faith, being less of a cult reserved for the well-to-do and powerful in society and more one with broader appeal. I will note that in later books published after Elementor's Guide to the Forgotten Realms, Lovatar's faith is still regarded as the secretive cult operating beneath the eyes of authority or a known secret that most do not pay mind to. Responsibilities and Duties of the Faithful To all Lovitans, pain is the medium through which they derive their power and receive the attention of their patron goddess. Commonly, Lovitans call willingly suffered pain the kiss of Lovitar. Pain is to be harnessed in one's ability to both inflict and endure it. Suffering is considered to be the prime charge of Lovitans. Prime charge being capitalized here. Lovitans preach the need for a cold and calculating disposition that matches Lovitars. To emulate Lovitars still, Lovitans espouse physical beauty, social manipulation, and grace. If one isn't considered conventionally beautiful and attractive, they are allowed to take the necessary magical steps to change that. The obvious ways Lovitans enact pain and suffering in the realms are torture and physical punishment like whipping and flogging. However, they value and practice all sorts of social and psychological manipulation to cause emotional pain. 
Some mentioned examples are pretending to fall in love with someone while hiding away their religious affiliations, breaking up friendships and lovers, and participating in sexual escapades before turning around and rudely rejecting fellow participants. Any gifts or treasures received at the hands of past lovers and accomplices may be kept, so long as the Lovitin is working towards increasing the acceptance of the faith locally. Within their own temples, Lovitins follow rules that dictate the types and severity of pain they may receive and administer to one another. Those at the lowest ranks of the clergy complete tasks in taxing and painful ways to build up their resistance to pain and suffering and instill a cold sense of discipline. Eventually, wounds will have salt rubbed into them to even further this training. Alovitin's control and tolerance to pain can be built up to a point that they are able to function with clear faculties even as they are actively dying from sustained wounds or have been dismembered. As you can imagine, Alovitin's bear many scars on their skin from wounds both suffered from their peers, battles, or themselves. Orders and Priestly Bodies The Disciples of the White Rod is the order all Lovitin monks are affiliated with. Their name is derived from a white rod given to this order's founder by Lovitar herself. This white rod is still held in the original monastery near Kalimport as a relic. These monks almost always will use their hands to fight. Though if a weapon is needed in a particular instance, they wield nunchucks. The handles of the nunchucks are wrapped with bleached white leather. Mystics were only a second edition player option, though there is mention of a particular philosophy they follow called the Way of Transcendence. It is described as an eccentric way of life, though these mystics just smile at those who ask to elaborate on its tenets and practices. Pain teachers are referred to as the inquisitors of the Lovitin faith. Recall that I mentioned that the pain, the specialty priest from 2nd edition, function in a similar capacity. A pain teacher is tasked with sussing out the weak-willed. Once discovered, is the pain teacher's charge to kill such a person. Pain teachers, much like their Lovitin kin, have no fear of pain and laugh in the face of threat of it. Ridicule is had for those who suffer pain without ever dealing it back to others. They are gifted with a significant bonus when intimidating people. Then on the flip side, those attempting to intimidate a pain teacher suffer a significant penalty. A pain teacher can keep on fighting despite dropping to a certain threshold beneath zero hit points should they succeed on the necessary check. Pain teachers can heal others, but any dice rolled to heal are automatically adjusted to one on the respective dice. What's more, the healing magic a pain teacher channels is terribly painful to experience, though it still heals, not damages. Pain teachers rely on mundane means to get the truth, thus divination spells that they may cast are cast at one level lower. They cannot turn undead. Scourge maidens are hybrid frontline combatants and clerics wrapped into one scourge-wielding package. They are masters in torture and adore afflicting pain and wounds on their enemies and supplicants. Scourge maidens are used as defenders and warriors based out of Lovitin temples. They typically work in small groups, though they have been known to be tasked with solo missions. Appearance and Dress 
All genders wear knee-length black boots, black chokers, and black gloves that go right up to the shoulder in their ceremonial dress. Either over top or beneath their ceremonial robes, Lovitans wear leather body harnesses. Ceremonial robes may be ice white or black lined with scarlet silk. Each Lovitan carries serrated daggers and whips. Lower ranking clergy members wield two daggers, one in their belt and one in their boot. They also have a barbed whip with a six foot reach. Medium ranking members are provided with a barbed cat o nine tails with a four foot reach and potentially a black mace that has a sleep poison in its hollow handle. The highest ranking members have a handful of iron bands of Bellaro strapped onto their belt while some may bear a magical cat o nine tails. This magical weapon functions as a wand of fire, frost, and fear. The tails are made to resemble electrum tentacles coming off a steel shaft. Every strike with the whip determines a random magical effect of fire, frost, or fear on a d10 roll. Should a 10 be rolled, two random effects afflict the target. In the novel Maiden of Pain, the main character, a Lovitan priestess, wears the holy symbol of the scourge around her neck. Though the scourge actually is functional in the sense that it is used for the morning and evening to self-flagellate in prayer to Loviatar. She never uses the scourge as either a weapon nor an improvised weapon. Since this character is from Thay, it may be an observed practice regionally or particular to the temple she hails from. The symbol is a 4-inch handle of iron with 9 5-inch long leather straps that hang from it. The symbol is affixed around the neck by tying two of the straps together. When adventuring, Lovitans of all genders wear pleated armor that looks like scale mail. This armor is more decorative and meant to show off the figure of the individual rather than protect. Most will wear a breastplate over top adorned with several spikes. Pain teachers wear the same sort of pleated scale mail that other Lovitans cover themselves with. Over top is a diaphanous long cloak of black gauze. An optional addition to this outfit is a black silk hood. Their weapon of choice is either a morning star or cat o nine tails. Rituals Lovitan clergy pray and meditate on their spells in the morning. While they do so, they kneel and self-flagellate, most often with a whip. They repeat this in the evening, but not selecting their spells. All seasonal festivals are marked with a practice known as the rite of pain and purity. Participants dance in a circle while chanting and singing upon a hazardous surface such as barbed wire, thorns, or broken glass. Senior clergy encourage these dances with their whips to perform with more and more zeal. Lay followers beat drums to keep up the rhythm and tempo. As the clergy dances, a red aura slowly rises up from the floor to hover above the participants. Should Lovitar have a need to speak with these particular followers, she will take this opportunity to do so through the cloud-like aura. Lovitar may make the need for a certain quest known, or espouse her pleasure or displeasure with this given group. Should Lovitar not present herself 30 minutes into the rite, the rite comes to an end, and they heal themselves. On every twelfth night, Lovitans perform another ritual 
though it lacks a given name. The faithful dance around lit candles, all the while offering prayers to Lovitar. Occasionally, participants run their hand or another part of their body through the flames of the candles. The ritual comes to an end when the highest-ranking clergy member puts out their candle with blessed wine. If this ritual lands on the same day as the rite of pain and purity, the rite supersedes this lesser ritual. Smaller rituals revolve around the consecration of whips, wine, holy symbols, and other items of significance like potions and torture implements. Jassel is a perfume that smells like ripe cherries. It has a blue-green look to it. It is used frequently in Lovitan rites and rituals. After Jassel has been applied to expose skin, Lovitans whip that skin. The pain is intense and feels like it is on fire. The skin, however, will heal itself on any bruises, cuts, and wounds that are sustained. What's more, Jassel-covered skin causes a louder cracking sound when struck and lets off a potent cherry smell. This is not a cheap fragrance, as a flask of it tends to go for 140 gold pieces. In one of Ed Greenwood's threads over on the Candlekeep forums, he mentions how the Lovington faith practiced their own version of ritual scarification. A low-level Lovitan continually whips the same spot on their body until a wound develops. All the while, prayers to Lovitar are said. Dyed salt is then placed into the wound to give the later scar a particular color. Attending clergy members then use red-hot implements to cauterize the wound to form the scar. Lesser rituals contain chanted prayers by clergy interspersed with the cracking whips either upon an altar or on one another. Any lay followers present will speak loud responses from a handbook or words read out for all to see. These spoken words are to be done in unison. As the ritual progresses, the pace and passion with which the words are said increase. General Characteristics of Places of Worship Temples built above ground tend to have large dungeon complexes built beneath them. The outside construction of Lovitan temples are utilitarian and simple in appearance. Walls are made of stone or thick wood. These temples look as if a monastery with simple cells for rooms was combined with that of a prison complex. The clergy's rooms even may have bars across the windows. Specific Places of Worship the Lady's Hand, also known as the Monastery of Lovitar, may still be found in the Nether Mountain Range in the Silver Marches. The Lovitans here have a collection of tomes and scrolls from a found lost and abandoned Netherese arcane school. In the past, the Lovitans had to contend with local orc bands and monsters which were driven off with the assistance of their hoarded magic items. The Lovitans here unfortunately became enemies of the local family of blue dragons, known as the Blood of Moruim. The Blood of Moruim have attempted twice to attack the Ladies' Peak Mountain, where the monastery resides, only for the Lovitans to repel them. In the first instance, one of the Blue Dragons was killed. The second instance did substantial damage to the monastery to the point that the Lovitans had to retreat into the caverns of the mountain. While they had plans to rebuild, the Lovitans debated whether to suffer through the winter or to leave the Lady's Hand abandoned. The House of Nine Blessings is a Lovitan temple found in Callumport. This building is constructed out of white glazed brick. 
Decorating one of its outer walls is a mosaic of Lovitar's symbol in black and blue. Many slavers come here to worship and make offerings. The Rusting Whip is a major temple complex to Lovitar in Melvon. Found by the eastern docks, the complex is formed from many connected houses. It is a dimly lit place emanating the strong scent of incense and the sound of unnerving chanting. The Black Spires of the Maiden is found to the west of Isla, out in Om. It is located in the Vale of Wailing Women. This temple is said to be the largest, richest, and most active Alovitan places of worship. As the name implies, it is a complex made up of two towers. The temple houses many agents who travel throughout Faerun, at least as of its description during the second edition era of the realms, a priestess who goes by the moniker of the Queen of Torment had developed a powerful mixture called the Milk of the Maiden. This enchanted collection of sap and plant oil allegedly heals and guarantees resurrection for those immersed in a pool of the mixture. This is the secret of the Lovitan faith who will zealously pursue those who are able to abscond with any amount of the Milk of the Maiden. Out on the island of Dragon Isle, one of the pirate isles in the center of the Sea of Fallen Stars, can be found a temple of Lovitar built upon the slope of a mountain called Earthspur. Though no Lovitan clergy have ever taken up residency here, instead lay followers conduct services. I will call out that while Lovitar's clergy may no longer be active in Dambrath, because of her strong influence here, temples were founded in every city in Dambrath. Every ranch found out in the rural areas had their own shrine. The capital city of Kathir, named after the priestess who led the Lovitans initially into Dambrath and became its first queen, had, quote, numerous temples dedicated to Lovitar. The largest in the city was incorporated into the central palace, where queens of Dambrath ruled and lived. The Palace of Sweet Pain was found in Zental Keep. This temple was made with Gothic architecture in mind. The outside battlements and turrets sport all sorts of barbs and spikes. Locals spoke of individuals who slept while the shadow of this temple fell across them. These individuals had nightmares which left many of them with cryptic messages and revelations. These messages, however, always left the person with the foreknowledge of bad things to come. Within the temple could be found an array of torture chambers, cells, and rooms dedicated to the illicit revels of the Loviatins. Unique to the palace was a basement labyrinth called the Broken Body. The traps and hazards within were designed to cause as much pain without killing the individual. Upon reaching the center objective of the maze, an individual could ask Lovitar questions as if the spell commune had been cast. What state this temple exists in with the several attacks upon Zental Keep, to my understanding, is still up in the air. The Tower of Seven Woes is a small temple carved within a huge stalactite along the cavern ceiling of Skullport. The stalactite looks like it is sticking into the local prison ceiling. The walls are sheer and a small group of gargoyles and margoyles guard it from the outside. The clergy here keep their rituals and practices secret from the flaming skulls of Skullport. The name of the temple comes from the fact that each of the seven levels of the temple are named after a particular type of pain or suffering. The first floor is known as the Agony of Frost and Fire. 
The remaining six remain a secret of the clergies. Holy days dedicated to Lovitar are marked by the echoed screams coming from within the tower that echo around Skullport. Reading through Dungeon of the Mad Mage from 5th edition, the Tower of Seven Woes has since been abandoned. While claimed to be the largest Lovitan temple in 2nd edition's Spellbound box set, Lovitar's manor in Byzantor is undoubtedly in direct competition to the Black Spires of the Maiden. The manor has several acres, all which are rigidly maintained and kept up. The grounds feature gravel walkways, fountains, and an indoor bathing pool. The temple proper is carved into a hillside. Within can be found several common rooms used in group ritual and smaller chambers for individual prayer. Several red wizards and clergy from other faiths come here to associate and partake in the services Lovitans offer. The outside of the temple is only decorated by a carved relief of a scourge above the main entrance. A high house of herding is found in Mallmaster. The structure is made from black basalt. Walking into this temple, you are immediately struck with the lingering scent of blood and leather. There are several rooms in this temple that may or may not be meant as exclusive torture chambers. The main worship hall has no seats and lacks any sort of creature comfort. Any place you might try to sit or lay upon in this temple is constructed in such a way that you suffer some element of pain or discomfort. You can hear the sounds of rituals carried out from outside the temple, but what those rituals entail is known only to the clergy. At least of its description in 2nd edition, the Fall of Stars is a tavern in Harrowdale run by Lovitin. This tavern is a welcome place to all degrees of shunned and disgraced adventurers to come and stay. The former owner was the Lovitin, an adventurer herself. After passing on from her mortal body, she still exists as an undead floating skull that attends to administrative tasks secretly and behind doors. Her daughter is the current tavern keeper, who typically wears spiky gowns and whips dangling from her belt. She does not enforce her faith and belief on others, rather she is seen as a caring confidant. Many Claws Alley is found in Lelon. The alley here is haunted by creatures called Hukuva. These nine creatures are said to be tied to a forgotten and demolished temple to Lovitar. They remain here to guard treasure beneath the alley. Within a hidden away glade in the city of Simbar, Lovitan clergy conduct their rites, spinning any news of their rites that get out as simply just pleasure parties. Anyone is welcome here, and allegedly converts have been made. Only select Lovitans though are granted knowledge of a secret shrine called the Sting. The Sting consists of a house that encircles a courtyard. The courtyard is obscured by several trees. In the middle is a willow tree that is crooked and bears thick leaves and thorns. This is known as the Tree of Lovitar. It is not alive despite its appearance. It is a conduit of Lovitar's power. Once a ritual, known as the Sting itself, is performed, if the shrine comes under attack, the tree becomes animated and helps to defend the location and Lovitans alike. The sting ritual itself first involves the presentation of seven objects that must have been inside someone else's body and cause pain. Typical objects brought forward are piercing weapons, caltrops, or barbs. 
Carved into the trunk of the tree of Lovitar is a platform. The seven objects are placed on this platform. The ritual leader then kneels and offers a prayer to Lovitar. The tree begins to animate slowly to the eventual point where the branches are whipping around. If the offering appeases Lovitar, the supplicant will only be cut with a hundred shallow cuts from the tree. If the offer is displeasing, the tree fully animates and attacks. The tree does not attack to kill, but rather to teach a painful lesson. A successful sting ritual grants the supplicant immunity to pain and a small degree of actual damage reduction. A temple to Lovitar existed in the upper levels of Undermountain beneath Waterdeep. This temple was called the House of Pain, found in the northwestern region of the Mega Dungeon. It catered to several Watertavian nobles who were Loviatans. A story but almost entirely forgotten entryway down to Undermountain called the Long Dark Stair led down to the House of Pain. The lackeys of the priest who had the House of Pain constructed defended this entrance. Another 3rd edition product mentions that a band of orcs called the Grinning Skull Tribe protected the temple. With the time jump of 4th edition, the House of Pain was abandoned. What's more, a local festal had unintentionally discovered the trapdoor, which was the exit to the surface from the long dark stair. Just they did not know it, rather tossing refuse in through this trapdoor. According to Dungeon Magazine 90, a priestess and her devoted Lovitan followers dug out a secret shrine to Lovitar beneath a settlement called Twilight Hollow. The shrine is called the House of Torment and is found beneath a temple to Ilmater. The temple to Ilmater shrouds and protects the small contingents of Lovitans from any suspicion as they masquerade as Ilmater's faithful. The shrine's interior walls display several different symbols of pain and scenes of torture. Doors throughout the shrine only open when the fiendish faces that form the doorknobs clamp down on a person's hand and draws blood. An iron censer continuously spews forth pungent purple smoke as it hangs above a spike-covered altar. A Lovitin monastery can be found among the farmlands surrounding Termish. This monastery resembles a large garden complex where an altar lies under an open sky and rites are performed in nearby glades. The focus of the rituals performed here tend to invoke fertility. Named temples to Lovitar include the Tower of Sighs in Zazapur, Lashtail House in Saradush, the House of Scarlet Hooks in Kalant, and Painbliss Hall in Westgate. An unnamed temple to Lovitar can be found in Selgaunt. Unnamed shrines to Lovitar can be found in Derloon, Ordolin, Tantris, Yeshpek, and the Athane Enclave in Prosker. Character Options For 2nd edition, the Spain... <laughs> the Spain... The Pain Specialty Priest can be found in Face and Avatars. Abilities for Lovitan Crusaders and the Pain Teacher Priest variant can be found in Warriors and Priests of the Realms. For 3rd edition, the Initiate of Lovitar Feet and Scourge Maiden Prestige class can be found in Shining South. The following is a custom background for Lovitan Follower in 5th edition. For your two skill proficiencies, Intimidation and Medicine. For your language or tool proficiencies, uh, the Infernal Language and the Herbalism Kit tool proficiency. 
For your equipment, there's the charlatans or acolytes from the player's handbook. And for your feature, there's the acolytes shelter of the faithful or the charlatans false identity, both from the player's handbook. Sticking with 5th edition, here is a list of subclasses I think would be appropriate for an NPC or PC to take if they are a worshipper of Lovitar. For the Barbarian, there's the Path of the Zealot from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Cleric, there's the Death Domain from the Dungeon Master's Guide. And the Order Domain from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. For the Fighter, there's the Battlemaster and Champion, both in the Player's Handbook. For the Monk, there's the Wave of the Open Hand in the Player's Handbook. For the Paladin, there's the Oath of Conquest and Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Sorcerer, there's the Divine Soul Sorcerer in the Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And for the Wizard, there's the School of Enchantment in the Player's Handbook. Dungeon Master Options First, I'd like to touch on creatures who have official 5th edition stat blocks who Loviatar and or her clergy make use of. Keep in mind with the spellcasters, you can always swap out their listed spells for more fitting spells. From the Monster Manual, since Lovitar makes use of exiled devils, then all the devils in the Monster Manual apply. The Nightmare, Hellhound, Rat, Giant Rat, Swarm of Rats, Giant Spiders, Giant Wolf Spider, Acolyte, Priest, Knight, and Veteran. From Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, you should be able to slightly rework a Black Gauntlet of Bane to be a follower of Loviatar. From Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there's the Giant Flying Spider. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Blackguard, Champion, and Martial Arts Adept. All three of these also feature in Morankinen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse, though with a revised stat block. Following that, I'd just like to touch on two monsters that are from previous editions that don't have, as of yet, an official 5th edition stat block. Castigers are muscle-bound demons that are capable of teleportation around a battlefield. They can then stun those creatures that they engage with. These demons delight in the hunt and fear they manifest. Many are found on the Barrens of Doom and Despair, where they battle among one another in an attempt to either serve Talona or Lovitar. Castigers can be found in 3.5's Monster Manual 4. Inquisitors are undead, believed to have been created from wizards in the ancient past. As a result, their origins have been hidden by the mists of time. As their name implies, these undead get the truth out of their victims through torture. Some have their own terrifying lairs, where they hone their grisly practices. Others serve powerful beings, obtaining information from the victims captured in the name of that entity. At first glance, you may mistake an Inquisitor for a zombie. Often, half of its flesh has sloughed off, showing bone and tendon underneath. Some hide their horrendous faces, their faces having mucus dripping from both mouth and eyes. It is rare not to see an Inquisitor with a whip in hand. Their hands have been charred black from handling red-hot torture implements for unknown years. The face of an Inquisitor 
is horrendous to the point that any who look upon it must save against paralyzation. They strike out with both their whip and their overgrown nails that are claw-like. If struck with the nails, a creature is subject to a wasting disease that progressively reduces both constitution and strength unless cured. Any who suffer the tortures of an Inquisitor for a day must make a save or lose grip on their sanity. More information and stat blocks for the Inquisitor can be found in 2nd edition's Monstrous Compendium Forgotten Realms Appendix 2 and a 3rd edition era article in Dragon Issue 352. The Lash of Lovitar is the unusual magical tome for Lovitar found in 2nd edition's Prayers from the Faithful. This unusual tome is a whip with a braided leather strand and a wooden handle wrapped in leather. The braided strand is four feet long, with a knot tied onto its end. It appears to be flecked with something like silver metal dust. Metal clips hold the leather wrapped around the handle in place, but allow for easy unwrapping of the leather. On the inside of the leather wrapping is an inscribed spell. The spell that appears on the inside of the wrapping is chosen randomly from the list of spells the Lash was enchanted with. In order for the spell on the inside to change, a creature must be harmed with the knotted end of the whip. At that time, the inscribed spell will change to another randomly chosen spell assigned to the Lash. Any sort of divination magic to identify what spells the Lash is enchanted with immediately fails. Lovitin writings speak to the whip's ability to dance on its own, in that it can be commanded to hover and cast spells determined by the wielder. Writings tell tales of Lovitin casting normally, then subsequently being able to cast spells from the whip. The Lash first became known in the realms in 778 Del Reckoning, when it was in the possession of a petty tyrant who ruled over a small realm. The priestess made an arrangement with Lovitar to protect this realm. Lovitar would hurl magics down from the sky towards any foes. This small realm fell after Talos became angered with Lovitar for hurling magic down from the sky. Talos, being a god of storms and destruction, saw Lovitar overstepping into his own portfolios of influence and became angered. The priestess of Lovitar survived and began to travel abroad in Faerun, preaching Lovitar's tenets. After this priestess died from old age, the lash of Lovitar passed through the hands of subsequent Lovitan priestesses, who often fought, tortured, and killed one another to lay claim to it. His last recorded appearance was in 1322 Dale Reckoning, in the possession of Mert the Moneylender, for a very short time. A Scourge of Pain is a plus one Scourge with barbs that wrap around it. In addition to the normal damage it does, it inflicts 1d8 points of non-lethal damage that rack the creature with pain. With each hit, the creature must make a constitution saving throw or suffer a significant penalty to attacks, checks, and saving throws for 1d4 rounds. The Scourge of Pain is found in 3rd edition's Shining South. To round out the Dungeon Master section, the following are some thematically appropriate magic items. From official 5th edition sources, I feel the faith of Lovitar may have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, plus 1 to plus 3 whips, Candle of Invocation, 
in particular keyed for the lawful evil alignment, the dancing sword, but make it a whip instead, glamoured studded leather, iron bands of Bolaro, mace of terror, whip qual's feather token, rod of absorption, sword of wounding reward to be a whip, you'll see me saying that a few times here, vicious weapon, in particular a whip variant, from Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, a weapon of certain death, again, make it a whip. From Descent into Invernus, a reworked battle standard of infernal power. From Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, a plus one to plus three amulet of the devout. From the recently arrived Big Bee's Glory of the Giants, a bloodshed blade, again, rework it to be a whip. A Lash of Immolation, in Reaper's Scream. From Tales from a Yawning Portal, The Wand of Entangle. From Xanathar's Guide to Everything, The Dread Helm, and Perfume of Bewitching. Alright, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the release of future episodes, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. Audio versions of the podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me with any comments or questions, you can send an email to realmsreligion at gmail.com. I haven't mentioned it in a while, but I'll mention it here. For those interested, I have posted a link in the episode description to a Discord server I've set up. If you're listening in audio, the link should also be in the episode description, though you can find the link to the invite pinned on the podcast Twitter page. In the next episode, I will be covering Helm, the lawful neutral god of protection and guardians. Until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path. Music for this episode, Malicious by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.